Matthew 21, we'll begin reading with verse 33, read through verse 46. Jesus said, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. They did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to Jesus, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving this word for us. We thank you, O Lord, for loving us so much that you have recorded these stories, these events, these important events in the history of salvation. You've carefully preserved them for us, and you have your grace, you have seen to it that we have these precious truths. Now, O Lord, we approach you this morning that you might teach us and guide us from your word, that you would not only teach us and instruct us, but you would change us by way of your word. So to these ends, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen. It's been a long ride in the the Gospel of Matthew, hasn't it? We've been in Matthew a long time. We've taken a couple of breaks, but it's been a really long ride. Here we are finishing up chapter 21. And uh, throughout the, the teaching of the gospel, I've, I've always tried to search for connections, and I'm trying to share the connections that I know in the gospel. And over the last couple of weeks, I've been making it really a point to show some important connections here between the religious leaders who come to challenge Jesus' authority and the parables that Jesus is uh, presenting uh, in the wake of the challenge of that authority. And one of the chief points that I've been trying to make is how gracious Jesus is. It's easy just to move right along and miss that. But in the face of his enemies, look at how gracious he is. I mean, they're refusing to deal with the truth. They're suppressing the truth in wickedness. And uh, Jesus could have simply judged them right then in the spot and 
uh, he, there would have been nothing uh, unrighteous about that. But that's not what he does, is it? Uh, he presents three parables. Last week we looked at the first, the parable of the two sons, and this week we look at the parable of the wicked tenants. And some of you are probably familiar with the story. I mean, in this parable, Jesus speaks of a master who plants a vineyard, and he, he, we don't probably know much about vineyards. I don't know hardly anything about vineyards, but uh, in reading about vineyards in the Word of God, they usually include a wine press. They usually include a, some type of hedge or a fence around it and a tower. Uh, these things are somewhat strange to us, but they wouldn't have been strange to the first century audience uh, to whom Jesus is speaking. And he speaks in his parable about a master who does all these things. He plants a vineyard, very carefully nurtures it, sees to it that it gets everything that it needs, and then he leases it to tenants who go into, and then he himself goes into another country. Now, when the season for fruit drew near, I do know about that part of it. When the season for fruit drew near, uh, he sent his servants back to the vineyard to collect his fruit. And we're told in the parable how the tenants received those servants. Uh, they beat one up, uh, they killed another one, and they suffered yet another servant to a real slow death by way of stoning. So the master sends another group of servants that are more plentiful than the first, and they do exactly the same thing to the second group. So then the master reasons. He says, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll send my son back to the vineyard. Surely they'll respect my son. Well, when the son arrives, the wicked tenants say to themselves, look, here's the son. Let's take him outside of the vineyard and let's kill him, and then the vineyard will be ours. And that's what they go and do. And then Jesus asks a question. And it's important that we keep this, this connection in mind as Jesus asks this question. Who is he posing this question to? It points back to those who are uh, opposing his authority. He's asking the religious leaders who are in standing in uh, violent and hostile opposition to him. He asks them a question. And by way of application, he is asking all who will later oppose his authority all the way down through the quarters of time, all the way to the present hour. This is the question is being posed to everyone who opposes the authority of Christ. He asks when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? The religious leaders respond in verse 41. He says, well, they put those wretches to a miserable death. That's what he'll do to them. He'll put them to a miserable death and then he'll give the vineyard to somebody else. To somebody who will give him his fruits when the time comes. Then Jesus responds with these words that take us right to the very heart of the parable in verse 42. Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. You know, we, because we're so far removed in time and culture from first century Palestine, a lot of times uh, we have trouble understanding all of the details of these stories, don't we? Uh, or maybe I'm the only one who does. I don't know. I suspect I have a lot of company in the room here that sometimes it's hard to understand these things, isn't it? Uh, if we would have been first century uh, Palestinians uh, at this particular time hearing these things, 
There would have been a number of points about Jesus' parable that would have been uh, blatantly obvious to us. First of all, this whole imagery of a vineyard being planted by the sovereign care of a master uh, would have reminded us of a couple of passages of Scripture. Uh, the first uh, coming from Isaiah chapter 5. I'm going to read the first four verses of Isaiah 5 to you and listen for the resemblances of Jesus' parable as I do this. Uh, the Lord is speaking through Isaiah and He says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning His vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? You hear the resemblance? Let's try it again with another passage of Scripture. This one's taken from Psalm 80 in verses 8 to 11. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. What's the psalmist up to here? He's referring to Israel's deliverance out of Egypt and God's sovereign care in leading them into the promised land. And he's doing this through the imagery of a vine, isn't he? Through a vineyard. And we can see the, the striking resemblance. If we would have been first century, if part of the first century audience is Jesus is speaking this parable, uh, these things would have been in our minds. No, no doubt they would have been in our minds. In fact, uh, I think that at this point we would have seen that the master in the parable is the father. I don't think there would have been any question there. We would have seen the vineyard in the parable as Israel and we would have seen the wicked tenants as these religious leaders who are challenging the authority of the Father. Now, um, what about Jesus' somewhat cryptic words, the stone that the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone? What, what about that? What would we have made of that? Well, if we'd have been part of the first century audience, that wouldn't have been, that wouldn't have been strange to us at all. You know, we have our favorite praise songs that we sing all the time, don't we? And we probably know many of the words, maybe some of the songs we know so well enough that we can, we can sing them without the aid, or a com uh, uh, the, the aid of a, a bulletin. We know the words off by heart. Psalm 118 would have probably been one of those songs. That probably would have been one of our favorite praise songs in the first century. Why? Because every year when we gathered for the Passover, that would have been one of the songs that we sang. The crowds, they, they sing it when Jesus, you know, remember the, what we call the triumphal entry? When Jesus makes his way down the Mount of Olives, we usually look at that passage uh, around Easter time on Palm Sunday. What's going on there? Jesus, Jesus is making his way down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, and there's a large crowd in Jerusalem because they're gathering for the Passover feast. And they hear that Jesus is coming, and this large crowd comes out of Jerusalem, goes up the Mount of Olives, to meet Jesus. And Jesus is descending down the Mount of Olives and there's a large crowd following him from Bethany. And at some point on that hillside, these two crowds converge 
And as they converge, what happens? They begin to sing, Hosanna, which means save us, we pray. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Where does that come from? It comes from Psalm 118, which reads this way. Save us, we pray. That's the word Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They knew this song very well. I don't think they had a projector on the hillside. I don't think they had their hymnals out on the hillside. They knew the song. Now, I've got pieces scattered all over the place. I realize that. Let's see if we can assemble this thing uh, and see if we can't make it look like something that we understand. Let's see if we can put some of this together. If we were the first century audience, we were hearing Jesus' parable, we would see the master of the vineyard as the father. That's pretty easy, right? We got that. We would see the vineyard as God's covenant people. I think we got that. We would see the wicked tenants as the religious leaders who are opposing uh, Christ's authority. In fact, we, we pretty much know that because at one point, uh, what do the, uh, what do the uh, uh, religious leaders say in verse 45? When the chief priests and Pharisees heard this, they perceived what? He was speaking about them. Did they get this? Yes, they got it. For sure they got it. They're the wicked servants in the, or the wicked tenants in the parable. Uh, what about the servants? Who are the servants? The servants are... Uh, the prophets that the Father sent to Israel to call Israel to repentance. That's the servants. And what about the Son whom the Father sends to His people? Well, that's pretty easy to see. That's Jesus Himself, isn't it? He is the stone that the builders rejected, who has become the cornerstone. What's that all about? That's... That's building language. That's construction language, isn't it? Uh, we, we do have a, at least one uh, uh, stonemason with us this morning. Uh, when these ancient uh, buildings and these old buildings were constructed, uh, typically the, the, the folks who were putting the building together would root through the stone pile and they would look for the most appropriate stone to use as the cornerstone. The cornerstone would be the stone upon which uh, the walls would take their reference, the supporting walls of the structure. Uh, it was recognized as the, the chief stone of the entire building. And if you look at many buildings, especially buildings that were built years ago, uh, a lot of times on the one corner of the building, they'll have a different color stone there. And they may even have a date on that stone, or they may have something uh, uh, written on the stone upon which the building is... Uh, uh, in commemoration of. Uh, you see, that, that comes right from this parable. It comes right from the scriptures. So here's the idea. The, the, the builders go to the stone pile. They root through the stone pile. They're looking for the appropriate stone upon which they can use for the cornerstone. Now, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, fellas, you guys are opposing me. You're opposing God. You rooted through the pile of stones. And that stone that you discarded over there, that stone that you tossed out, that stone that you refused to use, that is the stone 
that the Father is using as the chief cornerstone. It's the stone that will support the structure of God's kingdom. It is the stone upon which everything in the kingdom of God will take its reference to. The stone that you have rejected has become this cornerstone, and that stone is Christ. Now, what are we to make of all of this? Well, there's all kinds of things that we could say. I just have a couple of thoughts that I would like to share with you about this. And the first one, probably, uh, I, I probably couldn't get this one off my mind because the persecution that's taking place right now across the lands, especially in many of the Muslim com uh, countries, you probably have read about some of this, you've seen about some of this, and I don't want to go into the details because it's so horrific uh, that uh, I don't want to go into details, but it, it's, it's, it should be really bothering us. We have brothers and sisters. I don't know if you think about that, but we have brothers and sisters all over this world. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers and sisters whom which we will worship God with for all eternity. Brothers and sisters whom which we are going to know one of these days. We're going to meet and we're going to know them more intimately than we know our best friends now. And those brothers and sisters are being persecuted in a horrible way right now. So really my first thought is about that. I mean, we, as horrible as this is, we shouldn't be surprised when we see persecution. We shouldn't be surprised. You know, the language that Christ is using here in Psalm 118 is building language, isn't it? The stone that the builders rejected. That's building, that's construction language, isn't it? Well, he's using construction language because he's in the construction business. He's building his church. Jesus being the cornerstone. Well, throughout the history of this project, there's always been opposition, hasn't there? Every step of the way. Remember the servants whom the master sent into his vineyard to collect his fruits? Those were the prophets. Did the prophets have an easy time uh, carrying out the calling that the Father put on their hearts? No. No. You read the Old Testament, you, you read about terrible things that happened to some of the prophets who carried out the calling as they were being used in the construction process of building the kingdom of God. And, you know, an example might be uh, the story that we studied a few months ago in Matthew 14, the story of the last of the Old Testament prophets, the story of John the Baptist. John was called as the forerunner of Christ. That was his assignment, to go and preach repentance to the people of Israel. Did he have an easy go at that? Well, is that easy for him? When we were looking at Matthew 14, we, we were looking at a story in his life where he had, he had denounced uh, the uh, adulterous marriage between Herod and Herodias. He called it what it was. He called them to repentance. And how did that work out? Herod said, John, you know, you're right. I got some repenting to do. Uh, uh, we need to take care of this right away. Um, I'll, I'll be on my knees until the issue is resolved. I'll seek God's forgiveness and, and uh, you're, you're right. Thank you, John. Is that how it went? They were, inf they were infuriated. Herodias so much that she used all of her influence and all of her power 
to see that John was incarcerated in a most horrible way and then later that he would be executed. So in the course of him carrying out his part in the building of the kingdom, it cost him his life. And now here Jesus is, really in the last days of his earthly ministry, carrying out process, the chief and fundamental process, and how's it working out? These religious leaders are out to kill him, and that's what they're going to do. And he knows that's what they're going to do. He knows within a couple of days that's what they're going to do. They will crucify him. But his crucifixion will lead to his resurrection, won't it? And his resurrection will lead to the redemption of his people. The redemption of you and the redemption of me. And after he's raised, he will empower his disciples and they will carry on the work, won't they? And they will be opposed. The apostles weren't really in need of a re retirement program. I don't know if you've studied their lives. They, they really didn't need a retirement plan because they didn't live long enough to have one. John was probably the only one who would have been close enough to need a retirement plan. He, he got one on the island of Patmos. Uh, they, they met with fierce opposition. And now every generation of the church has been met with that opposition all the way down through the quarters of time, all the way down to the present hour that we're in. And we're watching the news and we're reading the blogs and we're watching the, the, reading the stories on the internet and we're seeing that it's still being violently opposed. And my point is, if we're going to follow Christ, we should not wonder when we see persecution. It's part of, it's part of the building process. In our, uh, in our culture, our persecution usually amounts to a loss of reputation or a loss of income or a loss of status, maybe a loss of a promotion that would otherwise be ours. You know, I've been thinking about that over the last couple of days, and I've been thinking of how petty that actually is in comparison to, the, to having your children stripped away from you and taken away and having no idea where they are. Or a husband and a wife being split up and you're having no idea where your wife is. That's what's going on. We're worried about our reputations. We should not be surprised when we see or experience persecution. And these are the costs that Jesus calls us to consider. He, he's really clear about it uh, as he calls us to put our faith in him. And this leads to my second thought. I'd hate to end the sermon on that one. That would be brutal, wouldn't it? This leads to my second thought. I mean, we should be comforted by the fact that the church of Christ is supported by the very power of God, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. I mean, we should be so comforted by that. I mean, all the combined efforts of all who attempt to stop the church are going to fail. They're going to fail miserably. Why? Look again with me to verse 42. Jesus said to them, who is he speaking to here? He's speaking to those who are opposing him, right? He said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? I love it when Jesus says that. These, these are the religious leaders. And he's basically saying, you fellas ever read your Bibles? That's what he's saying. You guys ever read your Bibles? You got them hanging off your hats. Do you ever bother to read them? 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. You see that little phrase right there? This is the Lord's doing. It's the Lord's doing. You know, socio sociologists and anthropologists, statisticians and folks that are in those types of academic disciplines, they view the church of Christ as if it's just another people group right alongside of all these other people groups. But that's not what it is. It is a people group for sure. But it's a group of people that are being gathered and being supported and being sustained by the cornerstone, by Christ himself. Amen? It's being gathered by Christ. Christ said, you know, when I am exalted, I will draw what? All men to myself. It's being gathered by him. It's the Lord's doing. And let us be comforted that no external threat nor internal threat can snuff out the church. The church is gathered, it's supported, it's sustained by Almighty God. So how does this apply? It's really easy, the work that's going on in our hearts. It's not your doing. If there's a true work of grace going on in your heart, that's not your doing. Sometimes we think about it as our doing. We need to quit that as quickly as we can. That's not your doing. You didn't do that. I didn't do that. None of us do that. It's the Lord's doing. We may be a new believer. If you're, if you're a new believer, take comfort in this. Why are you a new believer? You're a new believer because it's the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. All of heaven rejoices when a, when a new believer repents of their sins and comes to Jesus in saving faith. Why does all heaven rejoice? It's because it's the Lord's doing. It's the Lord's doing. We, we may be a believer with, or a person with weak faith. You know, we'll rejoice. So your faith may be a little bit weak. It may be a lot weak. If it's true saving faith, that's not your doing either. Think about who supports you. It's the cornerstone. He's the same one that's supporting the rest of us. It's the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And we think about uh, some of us who've walked with Jesus for quite some time. And there's some of us present in this room whose faith is very strong. Well, that's not your doing either. It's not my doing. It's the Lord's doing. Isn't that wonderful? The Apostle Paul put it like this in Philippians 1.6. He said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. I got a bad habit of starting projects and not finishing them. Am I the only one in the room like that? I'm trying to fix that. That's not a good habit. God is not in that habit. Everything that he starts, he completes. How wonderful it is to be part of this building project. Lastly, the last point I would like to make is that we should understand that our eternal fate comes down to our attitude towards Christ. I mean, we can see that quite easily, can't we? That's the human side of it. You know, I'm talking about the divine side of it. Now let's talk about the human side of it. What is our attitude towards Jesus? What is our attitude towards Christ? I, you know, I've made it a point up to this 
point here to try to emphasize how gracious Jesus is in dealing with his enemies. He's been very, very gracious, hasn't he? But we're coming to the point in this parable now where we're starting to see that there's a line in the sand. Where that line is exactly, none of us know. Only God knows. But there is a line in the sand that if we continue to rebel against Christ and we continue to oppose Christ, with every opposition, we inch a little closer to that line that's in the sand. None of us know where it is. But it is possible to continue to rebel against Christ to such a point that you cross that line in the sand, and once you've crossed that line in the sand, there's no point of return, ever for all eternity. And we learn that from this parable, and we're going to see that in the next parable. And in fact, we're going to start seeing this as we continue on in the Gospel of Matthew. These religious leaders, some of whom have crossed that line. How do I know this? Look at verse 43. Imagine hearing these words from Christ. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Could you imagine hearing that? Every time they rebelled against Christ and opposed Him, their hearts got a little harder. And their hearts got a little harder. And their hearts got a little harder. And their hearts got a little harder until finally, at some point, they crossed the line to where their hearts became so hard that all that was left for them is judgment. See, Jesus is very gracious. But let's never presume upon His grace. That's a really important lesson, isn't it? What is our attitude towards Christ? I, I, think that, I think too much of the time our attitude is the exact opposite of the testimony of Scripture. The, the testimony of Scripture says, listen, enter by the narrow gate. You remember that way back in chapter 7? Now that's going way, way back. I've already taken us back to chapter 14. It was many months ago. But chapter 7, we're talking a couple of years ago, a year or so ago. I don't remember. But Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who find it or enter by it are many. And conversely, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus says there are many that make it. Isn't that what that says? And there's a lot who don't make it. That's hard for us, isn't it? It's so hard for us that we like to reverse that. We think that most make it, and there's only a few that don't. That's not the testimony of Scripture. That's the way we would like it to be, but that's not the way that it is. At the end of the day, our eternal fate comes down to our attitude towards Jesus. I mean, if our faith is nothing more than lip service, Christ knows about that. He knows that all full well. That won't do. That simply won't do. A faith that is nothing more than life serv lip service will not do it. it. It really makes a mockery of things. If, uh, if we're undecided about Christ, we must understand that this is currently a state of unbelief and no decision is a decision, isn't it? No decision is a decision. If, we're, if that's where we are this morning, let's 
not be quick with the decision. Let's carefully count the cost as Christ is calling us to do. But as we count those costs, if we're going to follow Jesus and we're going to be serious about following Jesus in this life, it's going to be hard. Uh, it's going to come with persecution. It's going to come with... It's just hard to go against the grain of things. And that's what, that's what you'll be doing. And if we're indifferent, well, this is an attitude that basically says Jesus is irrelevant. Indifference. That Jesus doesn't matter to my life. He just doesn't matter. It doesn't make any... doesn't really matter. It doesn't... Uh, we could take him or we could leave him. Um, that's a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous attitude, isn't it? But let's rejoice if your attitude this morning is one of trusting faith, even if it is the weakest faith. Let's rejoice because it is the cornerstone who holds you and supports you. You see, when we travel out to the very edge of this and we look at the danger, doesn't that, when you step away from the edge and the cliff, doesn't that make you appreciate your salvation afresh again? It does me. How wonderful it is to be supported by the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone. It's the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord, I always find so much difficulty in coming up with words after uh, these kinds of uh, thoughts have been entertained, Lord. What do we say in response to you, Lord, for what you have done for us in Christ Jesus? What do we say, O oh Lord, in response to these things? We say thank you. We say that we will serve you. We say that you're the most precious thing in our lives. We say that you're the pearl of great price. O oh Lord, we thank you. We see from this text we're reminded, O oh Lord, that you're the cornerstone. You're the one who supports us. You're the one who has gathered us. You're the one who is sustaining us. And O oh Lord... We thank you and praise you that that is the case. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Everyone said.